0: Welcome to episode 159 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you.
2: In this world I do.
1: Hey, brother.
0: Hey, brother. What's going on?
1: Man, I feel like I just talked to you yesterday. <laughs>
0: I think you did. We did yeah. just do this. Nobody else knows. This is our own little inside joke.
1: Yeah, so I am, uh, I'm traveling to Minnesota this week, so in order to enjoy a little time with my family, Jesse and I have recorded a double header, so we're going to stretch out the uh, the posting dates here. But uh, we are back at the mics, and we're ready to rock and roll, so we didn't miss any content for our for Brotherhood family.
0: I love it when you say it like we're MCs.
1: We are. Back behind the mics. We got... We got two turntables and a microphone.
0: (laughs) Is that a Supertones reference right there? Is it Supertones? I don't know.
1: I don't think it's Supertones.
0: What they definitely use that in their first album. But I think they I, I use was...
1: that language, but I don't think that the music. I don't think the original is from Supertones. Is it? No, no,
0: no, no. It's just two speakers and a microphone. But I was. I thought you were dropping a ska reference on me right off the top, and I no. was blown away.
1: Little known fact: I actually fell asleep at a uh, Super chick con- concert one time, like right next to the big giant speakers. <laughs> it was at Acquire the Fire, and it was like day two, and I hadn't slept, and I literally like speakers next to my head that I probably should not have been sitting next to in the first place because of the the sound, like the decibel level. And I just slept right through the whole concert. It was amazing.
0: I'm going to ask the question that everybody wants to ask you right now, having heard that. Did you, in fact, acquire some fire at that concert?
1: Not at that one. I have acquired fire at other (laughs) Acquire the Fire conferences, though.
0: (laughs) And that's for another podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get into some affirmations and denials, unless that's what you were talking about right there.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely not affirming Super Chick. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I think the only song I can even remember is just the title hero, but I don't even remember the song itself.
0: I think they have a song called Anthem, which was pretty good. But I, I haven't even thought about Su- Super Chick in years. Like That yeah. is a reference from the past right there.
1: It is. By definition, it has to be a reference from the past. It can't be a okay, reference fine. from the future.
0: Fine. Technicality. Technicality.
1: Yeah, I'll start. So I'm, uh, I've am i been on like this new podcast kick, uh, as you may know, and I'm affirming a podcast called The Undying Light Podcast. So it's another uh, just, you know, you're kind of uh, standard couple of guys talking about theology podcast, uh, but they're just really thoughtful about what they do. Um, they did a series on the five solas. They've done a lot of different things. Check it out. The undying light podcast.
0: You know, you're not the only one who's reached out recently and asked for some new podcasts. So you may have seen this online. I did. My wife apparently went to Facebook. She crowdsourced and said, I love podcasts. I listen to a lot of them, but you get that itch where you're like, I want some new podcasts. Yeah. So what's great is she asked all of her people to respond and what cracks me up is she doesn't regularly listen to this podcast, partly right. because probably she just hears my voice all the time. It's true. But so many people, either because they wanted to be funny or because they were legitimate, just responded, you should listen to the Reform Brotherhood.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did see that. I thought it was funny. You know, yeah. that's one of the best things about finding a new podcast is, you know, the 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 podcast discovery engines that are built into like iTunes or Pocket Casts. Once you discover a new podcast, it kind of opens you up to this whole new like orbit of podcasts that you maybe haven't been uh, exposed to before. So I'm excited because I found um, Steady Anchor podcast and then he was on a couple of these other shows. So it kind of opened me up to some of these other shows. So I'm pretty excited to check out more of what these shows have. There's a couple more that uh, it's been recommending that I haven't quite got to. There's one called Christ is the Cure that I'm pretty excited to listen to. So uh, check it out, Undying Light Podcast. You can get it on podcasts, you know, podcatchers anywhere, iTunes, anywhere you can find podcasts.
0: Is that what we call it these days now? Is that like the official term, podcatcher?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not sure why anybody ever says where you can find podcasts because it's it's got to be like a super rare thing where someone is listening to a podcast like on the website and has no idea where to find a podcast.
0: I mean, I it guess it happen, could though. happen,
1: but... It yeah, seems actually, really it's funny. You,
0: funny you say that. I just had a conversation this morning about somebody who was like, Can you send me a link to the podcast? And I was like, A link? Like I was <laughs> like, what, what do you want to do with that link? I was kind of confused. I was like, Are you doing something weird? Why would you want a yeah. link? Like, so I can listen to it. I was like, what about what do you use as a, like a your app for your podcast? And they were just like, What? <laughs> My what? Uh, My what? I was like, There, yeah, how would you recommend listening to it? And I was like, Well, like with an app, like on your phone. And they were like, So you'll send me the link, and I was like, "Yeah." (laughs) So it happens. I get it. Everybody's comfortable with a certain type of technology, and how you interface with technology is always different than somebody else. So I'm down. That's fine. That's true. What are you? It just sounds like Dreamcatcher.
1: Dreamcatcher, yeah. It just sounds like Dreamcatcher. I'm uncomfortable with that.
0: Um, So we're recording this mid-October, so I don't know exactly when this will drop precisely, but. I'm affirming that people should get together this year and have a little celebration for Reformation Day on October 31st or thereabouts. And I'm affirming the idea because I've just recently, every, every time in October, I kind of fall in love again with thinking about the great lineage, the great, those of faith who have come before us. And I love the fact that we can kind of celebrate, you know, this is the time of year that Luther, you know, nailed his 95 Theses. And though there's like a lot of anecdotal stuff around that is a lot of it is, is blown out uh, completely. There's just this wonderful truth in the way that God works through his church. And to just think of where we are right now, that so much that we are in terms of our theological traditions comes out of that environment, comes out of those really processing. And it was for some of these, for many of these reformers, it was not necessarily just about like big ideas. It was about trying to understand how we're really reconciled with God and about making the gospel the centerpiece, that it is really good news. And so I just thought, you know what, I, this year I think I'm going to get some friends together and just celebrate that a little bit. Talk about what God's doing in our lives. Make that actually the centerpiece. Use it as an excuse to get together and have conversations of testimony about what God is doing in our lives and how we're thankful for the way that he's led us in our nation, in our churches, in our communities, and in our relationships. And try to pro- honestly, that discussion will probably happen around some beers because there's a great tradition there of you know the reformers imbibing and responsibly mm-hmm. enjoying some Beer. I especially was thinking recently about how I just find it so funny. There's so many anecdotes about the Reformation. And here's one that I love, which is is more likely not true. But one of the alleged things that the Pope said when he became aware and looked through Luther's 95 theses is that he said something to the extent of... Well, he's just a drunk German, and he'll feel better once he sobers up. Yeah, <laughs> he'll feel differently.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know what would be a great uh, addition to your Reformation Day celebration? What a beer stein!
0: You know what? That would be a great addition. It's do you know true. a place where I could get like an authentic looking beer stein?
1: It's true. It's true. I do. So we on the Reformed Brotherhood are running a very special, limited time only. 2019 Reformation Day special on uh, Reformed Brotherhood beer steins. So, our friend Raphael over at Confessional Wear, who puts together all of our merch, put together a sweet looking beer stein that holds 22 ounces of glorious brewed <laughs> beverage. Uh, you know
0: how big it is?
1: Well, I'm looking at the website, it says 22 ounce beer stein.
0: Oh, I d- I didn't, I wasn't sure if there's like a standard, like by law, it has to be 22 ounces. So we're just subscribing. I actually assumed it was a
1: pint and then I poured a pint into it and I was like, there's a lot more space in here. So (laughs) it's a 22 ounce beer Stein. Uh, It's got our, our uh, faces emblazoned right across the front. So pick up a beer Stein, uh, join your friends, pour some beers and celebrate the Reformation uh, Reformation Brotherhood style. So we'll, we'll probably uh, keep those up on the site for sale probably through like mid November, but then they're gone forever. Done. So go get them, get them quick uh, and enjoy your beer Stein.
0: So what's the website again? So people can find it.
1: It is dot com slash collections slash reformed dash brotherhood.
0: And you'll find it. If you just go to confessionalwear. It you can surf to our page and find all yeah. that stuff. And we should say that this is not like you're just little like chintzy glass. You know, like uh, Stein. This is like yeah. ceramic, authentic-looking, gold-rimmed. It's got the trim on it. It, it really is a beautiful-looking Stein. So yeah. this is gonna. I know everybody wants a, he- a Stein that's gonna turn some heads. This is that Stein.
1: It is. You could bring it to work <laughs> and drink your coffee out of it. It'd be like the most. It'd be like the most epic-looking uh, coffee mug ever. But yeah, it's they're pretty uh, sweet. I'm pretty so stoked good. about
0: them. So limited yeah, time so only. Good
1: supplies are not limited, but time is. So go get them right now.
0: I love it. All right. So let's kick it back to you for denial.
1: So, um, you know, yes. Yesterday when we recorded, you were worried a little bit about triggering people. I'm a little worried about triggering people because uh, I don't think there's a lot of Doug Wilson fans in our audience, but there might be a few. And I'm just denying Doug Wilson in general. Uh, Straight up. I I think he's a dangerous teacher. I think he has really dangerous theology, both practically and theologically. But specifically, I'm denying him in a recent video that was posted to the Canon Press uh, website or the Facebook. And in this video, uh, there was kind of a dialogue between him and and someone who works with Canon Press. And the question more or less was from someone who had written in that basically said, like, well, I was raised in a way that kind of suppressed my masculinity. What do I do to become more masculine in a healthy way? And, you know, Doug's answer, (laughs) I actually had to play it back a couple times to make sure I wasn't hearing it wrong or like he was misspeaking and it was clear as day. And I'm just going to I'm just going to quote it. And then I think I'm just going to leave it there, although I'm probably not going to just leave it there because we never leave anything there. But here's what he says. He says he needs to self-consciously study, read and lean against most of what he is taught at church by example, precept, and sermons. So in this video, he is, he's saying that women, when they're uh, exercising piety in a feminine way are quote institution friendly, meaning that like they don't, they don't cause problems. They're not difficult for the institution, whatever that institution is to manage. And so men, when they're acting masculine, are not institution friendly. So right there, he's basically saying like, men are going to make it difficult to be in an institution, like they're not good for an institution. And then he straight out says that if a person wants to be masculine, he should study, read, and lean against most of what he's taught at church, by example, precept and sermons, presumably because he's saying the church that most people are in or the church that this person is in kind of suppresses masculinity by encouraging them to like be institution friendly. So it's, it's just ridiculous. Like he can't sustain this kind of thing. If the people in his church were studying, reading and leaning against most of what is being taught by church at church, by example, precept and sermon, he would be bringing them up on like church discipline charges because they're ignoring pastoral commands. So he's literally like encouraging this person. If you want to be masculine, ignore what the church is teaching you.
0: At the very least it's just super poor advice, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's poor advice. It's, it's irresponsible advice to put out on yes. the internet for a bunch of, I mean, real so so Doug Wilson's primary red meat demographic is like 22 year old guys who already want to do this. They already want to ignore what the church has to say because they're convinced that they know better than everyone else. And so he's basically now giving them a license to ignore what the church has to say with little or no guidance about what aspects of, of what the church says to ignore. So when this guy who's 23 years right. old and wants to go sleep with his girlfriend exactly. wants to do that, all he's got to do is like, well, Doug Wilson said I should ignore what the church teaches me. So you know I should, I should be forward thinking and I should be assertive and I should go get what I want. And ignore the church. It's just dangerous, irresponsible, like pastorally negligent uh, advice to give indiscriminately. It might be one thing in a one-on-one pastoral situation to observe the church that a person's at and to identify that there are certain teachings that should be ignored and give this advice, but to indiscriminately give it out to the internet is just irresponsible. And I'm going to make a strong statement, but for a number of reasons, not just this, but, but this included... Doug Wilson is not qualified for ministry. He never has been. He's never been properly, duly qualified by an ordaining body. He he kind of made his own denomination up, and he teaches an errant Trinitarian theology. He teaches theology that that legitimately and concretely not only does lead to abuse, but has led to abuse, um, just on every level. Doug Wilson is a dangerous false teacher. He should be, he should be disregarded and ignored and fled from.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I really pains me because even those who are great teachers, sometimes the internet trips them up because of this indiscriminate type of advice. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it is really dangerous. I'm not sure what is accomplished by it he certainly did not make it specific enough. And even then you might question what exactly he's saying and why he's proposing that. Right. But you're right. It's too much license. It brings in too much Liberty. And this is the kind of thing I put under the auspice of, you should just know better. Yeah. I mean, when you're in a position like this, even regardless of what type of leader you are, you should just know better that this is not helpful. And that in the end, it's going to actually cause somebody to hurt themselves. Yeah. So I hope that that advice is not followed. I hope people can see it for what it is, but that's a good denial.
1: Yeah. And, you know, like just on a practical level, if you're in a church where you feel like you need to ignore most of what's being taught to you by the church, then go to a different like find a different church. If your church is that bad, then you should be going somewhere where you're getting good teaching that you don't have to disregard or or buck against. And what he's doing is he's just creating a whole generation of this weird, hyper, like hyper macho, uh, young white guys. And I, I don't say white guys because there's any any specific thing about being white that's related, that's just the demographic that's drawn to him. Um, that all they're doing is like building these schismatic people that want to flee from the church and sort of start their own little fiefdoms like Doug Wilson has.
0: Right. Yeah. It's just not anything that's going to bring about the unification of the body of Christ. Yeah. What's funny is like, here's a pastor who's basically undermining his own ministry in a sense, because again, by opening that door, he makes it permissible, at least by way of his advice to ignore the leadership of your church, which yeah. could presumably include his own. I mean, one might say, what is to stop that advice from being applied against you, like you're saying?
1: Yeah, well and this is part of the patriarchy, like the the unbiblical patriarchy movement is that the father and husband is the priest of the home. And so they're the ones that mitigate and mediate what is appropriate teaching and what's not. And so one of the main critiques of the patriarchy movement is that it takes ecclesiastical authority and it kind of rends it away from the church and invests it in the husband and father of the home. And this is just an example of it. And you know what? like this would apply to everybody except Doug Wilson's church. Like he wouldn't apply this to his own church. So it really is a schismatic perspective. And I I just, it's indefensible. And the only reason people defend it is because he's kind of like pithy and witty. And he like, turns a clever phrase and he says some occasionally insightful things about cultural analysis. But apart from that, there's really nothing of value in Doug Wilson that is unique to Doug Wilson in any sense. Anything that he says that is valuable, you can find a hundred different places with more uh, orthodox and more reliable and more consistent teachers. Right on. What do you got for a denial?
0: Certainly not something that serious. (laughs)
1: Let's do it. Bring us back up,
0: Jesse. I just, I just got uh, Jesus juked, but that was a really strong denial. Uh, so here's what I'm denying. I'm actually denying against the vitriol on the pumpkin spice craze. <laughs> now, cut to like all the people who are screaming right now, like, it's out of control. We have pumpkin spiced you know, dog food. We cannot go any further. Listen, I hear you. I agree with you. Here's where the denial comes into play. I think what we're inadvertently doing is we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're throwing yeah. out the pumpkin with the spice. The problem, people, is the spice. I'm, I'm a pumpkin fan. I'm, I'm actually enjoying right now a chocolate pumpkin porter. And the beauty of this is that it is an actual pumpkin taste as opposed to just like all clove or all spice or yeah. cinnamon or nutmeg. So I want to get the love for like the real pumpkin yeah. back into our lives. So I just feel like we've gone too far now with pushing against the pumpkin spice stuff because the spice is the thing that we should kick out of our lives and instead just embrace the pumpkin. I don't Agreed. know if we, I know we've talked about this at some some point. Do you like pumpkin though? Like squashes? Are you I can like you get actual down with the squash?
1: Pumpkin. Yeah, I like real pumpkin. Um, the pumpkin spice thing is where it does get a little weird. I mean, I like a pumpkin spice latte like once in a while. But like the, the everything pumpkin spice is just, it's too much. It's too much. It's too much.
0: It is too much. I, I agree with that. Like there's certain things that should be sacrosanct. Like do not touch this with that pumpkin spice. Yeah. But again, it's like the pumpkin has become the adjective. And really we're not talking about pumpkin flavored things. We're just talking about like blow your palate away with that weird kind of spiciness. Yeah. Do you partake of the pumpkin pie?
1: I do like pumpkin pie. I do like pumpkin pie a lot.
0: Yeah, cuz pumpkin pie is delicious. We yeah. we unfortunately my wife is not a big squash fan. So, have you ever had um sometimes I'll make just like a just like squash pie. So it's basically pumpkin pie but instead of pumpkin like just actual squash. Also delicious.
1: I've never had that. We should make that when you're here for Christmas time.
0: Yeah, like an acorn squash pie where it's just like it, it actually I think it tastes in some ways better because yeah, all you're getting is just that lovely it's like who would turn down sweet vegetables actually that sounds crazy now i say it but it's <laughs> it's really 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 good so please please embrace the pumpkin just give it a give it another chance give it yeah. another chance
1: yeah this just turned into the weirdest baking show i've ever heard
0: <laughs> you know what my wife again is watching the new episode of that britain baking contest whatever it is like the amateur bakers in britain who are in a tent and they bake man i know i've affirmed that before and i i just need to say it is a hilarious show because it's unlike any other american cooking competition because it's so chill they're (laughs) so nice to each other and they use all these strange words or they use the same words we do but they pronounce them completely differently man it is so entertaining it's like entertaining in a way that's like inconceivable to me because i'm like this sounds super boring like who wants to watch people bake because a lot of the show will be like now it has to proof. So it's like, you know, clips of them watching it proof. And then it's like, now it has to bake. Like, it's not like baking is like particularly exciting. It's not like, you know, Rambo's baking. It, it's just, you know, you're throwing stuff together. And then most of the time it's sitting around and waiting for God to do his amazing work through his creation in terms yeah. of like yeast and all this other stuff. So, uh, yeah, I don't, sorry. I don't know why I got on that. I just got super stoked about pumpkin and baking.
1: I just think it's funny how it's like the bell goes off and it's like they slowly walk to their oven. <laughs> they slowly start to knead their dough versus like the Iron Chef where the bell goes off and they're like grabbing knives and like trying to fight each other.
0: Yeah, they're like, you know, like hauling giant swordfish away. Like they're yeah. trying to edge each other out for bok choy or something. Yeah, You're right. That's what's hilarious is it's like they're like ready, set, bake. And then it's like. Oh, where is, where's my measuring cup? Now? Can you I please pass the flower?
1: Can you please pass the flower? That's
0: <laughs> yeah, so polite.
1: Pardon me, so could polite. you pass the flower? That <laughs> yeah, was, so my own, that was <laughs> the closest thing I could do to a British <laughs> accent.
0: Meanwhile, and now I know they exist because we've gotten some comments on this. Meanwhile, all of our lovely British brothers and sisters are like <laughs> turning off this podcast because we've just destroyed, butchered the Queen's <laughs> English
1: it's all right. It's all right. Yeah. They'll come back. That's all good.
0: Aluminium. So today <laughs> we got a little bit of question cast going on and I love a good question cast. I do too. And we have the best listeners who are part of the brotherhood. And so we've got a couple of questions that we need to throw out for some discussion today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Go ahead with the first one.
0: Hello, gentlemen. This is Jerry from Philadelphia. I have a question
3: regarding uh, the curse and how certain things play out in the eschaton. Um, So the Tower of Babel story depicts the multitude of languages as a form of a a curse on humanity. It causes confusion, causes um, breakdown and the humans aren't able to plot against God as they were when they had one language, uh, which let's be honest is King James only English. Um, That being said, in multiple times in Revelation, after the return of Jesus and all things made right, it's made the point is made that every tongue, tribe, and nation is present, um, particularly every tongue. As my question, so it seems that this aspect of the curse is not to be reversed. And I wondered what that what that means. In that our multiple languages not necessarily a curse. Is there a different interpretation of Tower of Babel? What is it? What is the effect of the curse
0: on languages? Um,
3: Yeah. Thanks. Grace and peace.
0: So our brother Jimmy brings what I think is actually a really interesting question here. And what I like about Jimmy's question is he's reading the Bible in this comprehensive way. So he's, he's hearing something spoken about language in the Old Testament, and he's trying to bridge it with what the New Testament is saying. So really, I think the question boils down to, what of the language curse in Genesis 11 that is referencing the Tower of Babel? Is this curse that is something that is not reversed in the eschaton? So to set the stage, let me read from chapter 11 in Genesis, a couple of verses, the full account of what he's talking about, and we can go from there. So this is from the NASB, this is Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tire for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people— and they all have the same language. And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad and there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So let's start there with this idea, because I think what's important at the beginning of this question is is Jimmy introduces the idea of a language curse happening here. What we see is this word confuse. So what do you think about those two ideas, confuse versus curse?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's not the case that just because the word curse uh, doesn't appear in a given chapter that it isn't a curse of sorts. So we we probably right. have to talk a little bit about what it what a biblical curse even is. So yes. when we think about a curse, we think usually our minds go to some sort of like magic spell kind of a situation, right? There's there's some sort of supernatural reality that's imposed upon a group of people or a person that defies kind of like natural explanations. That's not at all what a biblical curse is. So when a curse happens in scripture, it's God imposing a state of reality in a judicial sense upon a person or a group of people. And so the the word curse in Hebrew doesn't necessarily need to be present for that to be true, but we should be cautious of thinking of things as curses without a really good reason to. That, That said, I'm not sure it actually matters all that much whether we parse this out as a curse or whether we parse this out not as a curse. But what is clear to me from the text is that the, the presence of multiple languages is not the judicial curse or punishment that's imposed here. It's the confusion of languages. And the reason I say that is because if you go back just a chapter, um, even if you go uh, just to uh, verse 31, right? Verse uh, chapter Chapter 10 is uh, sometimes called the table of nations. Uh, It's a genealogy that talks about all the different people groups that sort of spread out after uh, the flood subsides from Noah's lineage. But if you look, there's this repeated refrain, and it says here in 31, it says, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands and their nations. And so even though verse uh, verse one of chapter 11 says the whole earth had one language and the same words. We have to remember sometimes the text is using the same kind of concept in different ways. So unless we want to postulate that there's some sort of incoherency in the text or without a lot of textual justification, have this idea that verse 11 actually starts uh, or chapter 11 actually comes chronologically before chapter 10, which some people do. We have to say that when it says the whole earth had one language in the same words, that that does not preclude multiple languages being in existence. What it means at the very least is that at some point, everyone on earth had the ability to communicate with everyone else on earth. Even if there were multiple languages, there may have been like a prime language that everybody knew, or it could have been that uh, the languages were similar enough that they were able to communicate Whatever it was, everyone was able to communicate with everyone else. But then by the time we get to the end of, end of chapter 11, and again, it's not necessarily everyone on Earth that this is talking about because we're talking about specifically the people in the land of Shinar. Well, the, the land, uh, the way that chapter 10 unfolds, there's people that are traveling south into Africa. There's people that are traveling uh, right. west. There's people that are traveling east and north. So, so people already start to spread out in chapter 10 as we see different nations come about, right? We've Egypt reference. We see, uh, Ur, which is, uh, in, in Babylon or the Babylon area. That's kind of this people in Shinar that we're talking about. We see, uh, the land of Uz mentioned, which is in, in or around, uh, Israel where Israel is. We see Cush, which is Egypt mentioned. So we see that there, Ur, which is, uh, Ethiopia. So we see this spreading out of people in chapter 10, but, The whole earth had one language. So even though there's these different languages, there's the ability to communicate across the board. So what happens here in chapter 11 is that ability to communicate is removed because the languages, the words, are confused. Right? So it's not the case necessarily that this is exclusively a judicial punishment because it seems like whatever God's doing in this that it applies to the whole earth even though it is only this subset of people in the land of Shinar that are sinning against God this consequence or curse or whatever we want to call it it seems to impact the entire earth so it's important for us the the reason I say all that is just so we can kind of get our heads around what exactly happened because if we don't understand what happened we can't really understand The second part of Jimmy's question, which has to do with kind of eschatologically, does this get resolved somehow, either in the eschaton or at some other point in history?
0: Right. We need to pay attention to what God was purposing here in descending and confusing the language, because I think you're exactly right. We're not seeing here punishment writ large and certainly not against the language. In fact, there's like a lot of irony, even in the way it's described. Here you have these people who are essentially building a tower so that they can communicate with God, and God is about to undo their own communication with each other. And then part of the heart of the matter is that it's made clear in the words, let us make a name for ourselves. So, of course, here you have them trying to make a name for themselves, which, again, is the use of language and understanding, cognizance and communication and expression, which God is about to undo or confuse. And so you have this tower being built, which is certainly a a modification of a religious concept. It's built to make a name for themselves, for man. It's also in some ways, I think, to acknowledge God, but it's clearly what they're trying to do here is to acknowledge God in a way in which he is controlled by them. And so language is just a part of that. I think it's very clever that that's, in fact, what God uses to create this insurmountable hurdle for the creation of this tower in this city. But I also do not perceive this as a curse. Now, it is interesting getting in, like you said, at the second part of Jimmy's question about, well, what about in the eschaton? Because he references something from Revelation 7, which we're, most people will be familiar with, this idea of many tribes and nations. So let me just read Revelation 7:9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation... And all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So I think actually what we're seeing here is first of all, we have this kind of unique. Uh, parlance of the the thrice repetition of something. So I would say the interpretation here of the tongues in the midst of the tribes and the peoples is emphasizing that in the eschaton, we're going to have this complete unification of God's people that all will be present there. And it will be the full spectrum of the creation that God has ordained in its expression of diversified human beings from different cultures, from different tribes who spoke different languages. And you and I kind of teased this a bit with our with ourselves when we were talking this out. And I think we both, it sounds like, we're both on the same page of, we, while we don't understand what heaven is gonna be like in respect with our communication, that we will have no problem understanding each other. Right. And so I don't think there's, I think what you f- find here is is redemption in the sense of the confusion that God brought about for a period of time is now unconfused, is now reunited. Now, whether that's because we have this massive, epic, ubiquitous translator, or because we just, for some reason, all understand each other and we have no issue. It's, it's almost six of one, half dozen of the other. But I think what we're emphasizing here in particular is just the enormity of the unification that's going to happen. In other words, all of our lives, all of humanity has always sought to find unity and diversity. That's what the university is. That's what e plurus unum represents. And we're only going to find that in the eschaton. And here I think that's what John is trying to emphasize. And he does it by way of referencing language because that is one of the very common places where we find diversity in our own world. So it makes sense that he would reference that. But I don't think he's saying that there was a, a curse against the language that has now been reversed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things we have to remember, right? This this um Genesis and Revelation were not written in, you know, 20th century uh, Google translate, uh, accessible worlds. And, you know, we don't tend to, um, place our cultural identity in the language that we speak. But if you think about it, you know, there are, there are those sort of, um, I don't really know how to say this without potentially being offensive, but there are certain sectors of the, um, the American culture that want to say something like in America, we speak English, right? Well, right. That's not really true. Like America doesn't have a legal language. It's always been a mixed bag. There's always been a plurality of languages. But but that concept of Americans speak English, particularly as Americans who don't have a legal language um, and, and as people who speak not not British English, but American English, which is already kind of like this weird amalgamation of things, our identity is not that wrapped up in the language we speak. But if you go to somewhere like France... And you suggest to them that they should no longer speak French, but you, you know, if you. Order your food speaking English when you're visiting France, they'll become deeply offended because you're you're kind of violating their cultural identity. Or the fact that, you know, we referenced it earlier, the fact that we call it the Queen's English. Well, there's a there's a certain kind of cultural identity that's associated with British English that we don't understand necessarily as American English speakers. And when you go back into history, that's even more uh, more pronounced. So when we talk about every tribe, tongue and nation, and, and we talk about every tribe and tongue, we're actually, that's actually a, a, a figure of speech called a, 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 hen, hen triadus or a hen diatris. Right. What it is, is it's, it's, you know, when we say certain kinds of things and we say this, this, and this, it's actually a way of kind of like saying the same thing, repetitive, like repeatedly. And so when we're talking about every tribe, tongue, and nation, what we're talking about is the discrete people groups that are are present before the throne. There is no people group that is excluded. So there's no, there's no people defined by tribe. There's no people defined by language. There's no people defined by uh, nation that is excluded from being present at the throne of the Lamb. That does not mean that there will be discrete nations or discrete tribes or discrete languages. Right. Maybe there will be. Right. There's references to the nations in the book of Revelation, even after kind of the consummation of all things. So maybe there will be discrete languages, but somewhere along the line, we'll be able to understand each other. And the way that this always has resolved for me in my mind, because I've asked this question, too, is when we look at the day of Pentecost, um, when you read the text carefully The miracle at Pentecost actually appears to be a miracle in hearing, not necessarily a miracle in speaking. And so the text, the text doesn't necessarily indicate that Peter was speaking or or any of the disciples were speaking a different language, but that the hearers were hearing the sermon in their own language. Right. So we've only got Peter's only saying one language, one sermon but somehow people are hearing it in multiple languages in their own language. And so we we see that there's this miracle of hearing that's happening where everybody can understand what's being said by Peter despite the fact that they each speak their own discrete language. And this is one of the things, you know, there's that weird um weird segment in Matthew where like the dead people come out of their graves and walk around the city of Jerusalem right after the resurrection and and what it seems to be at least if you read the text carefully there seems to be like Christ's resurrection usher's forth this resurrection power that actually kind of spills over to other people in in Jerusalem and there's this sort of like like sneak peek of the general resurrection of the dead. And the day of Pentecost actually is a similar kind of sneak peek in that it's a sneak peek of the day where all of God's people will be united and and unified, not only in that they follow Christ, but even in things like their ability to hear and understand each other, there will be unity. There will no longer be Jew or Gentile, even though all those people were Jews there's still this prefiguring of the fact that in the coming kingdom, these distinctions that we are, find so much meaning in on Earth will be obliterated in some sense in order to to create a single unified people.
0: Pentecost was like the original fire fest that actually mm-hmm. worked. and was awesome.
1: Yeah, that was that was
0: acquire the fire right there. <laughs> yeah, that was acquire the fire. All right. Let's do one more question.
1: Let's do it.
2: Hey, guys, this is uh, Adam from Colorado. Just have a question for you guys. I have – I'm in a discussion with somebody regarding the eternal submission issue, um, Christ submitting to – or the Son submitting to the Father from eternity past. And what I'm finding is is when I'm trying to pull up resources um, for – to show the position against that – um there's a lot of appealing to, you know, older older writers and confessions and creeds, but I'm not filing anybody um commenting on scriptural passages that show that show against it. Um whereas the person I'm in the discussion in is giving me resources that are full of scriptural passages. So I'm just really having a hard time. Um sorting out this issue. So if you guys are aware of any, any scriptural passages that would show that the um, eternal submission of the son is, is wrong. Or if you know of any resources that, that would address that issue scripturally, I'd appreciate it. Love what you're doing guys. Sorry for the rambling. Thanks. Bye.
0: So this is also another good question. And one, which we could honestly spend an entire podcast talking about. We love to reprise the EFS controversy to talk about it. It continues to pop up. And what I like about Adam's question is he's kind of coming at it from a perspective that I realized we haven't actually addressed, not at least with a lot of nuance. And so he's asking specifically what passages from the Bible specifically refute the concept of the eternal functional subordination of the sun. And I know that we've gone back, we have lots of episodes or at least a couple where we talked about EFS. We talked about some of the passages that those who Are supporting the doctrine use, but I realized that we haven't really perhaps given a lot of resource to saying, well, if you're having a conversation with somebody and you, you have to get the sense that this is not a biblical doctrine, well, where can I go in the scriptures to really draw some of that out? And so before we get to that, and I'll have you go first and kind of share some of where you would go, how you would approach it, because again, this is a I want to say it's not a complex question to answer, but it is complicated in the sense that uh, we have to, to synthesize some of the scriptures in, in order to understand it. In other words, it's not as if Peter was like, hey, let me just anticipate this thing called EFS. I'm going to write a couple things down for you, and you can quote these right out, and it'll be very clear because I'll have addressed it with the same words. But this is a good time real quick to just, this is my quick summary of what this doctrine says for those who might be jumping into the midst and are like, what, why do they keep talking so much about EFS? What does that even stand for? So EFS stands for eternal functional subordination, or sometimes you'll see it referred to as eternal relations of authority and submission. I like that one better when people are like, uh, what about EFS? I'm like, what about Eros? I know it just sounds cooler. So uh, if you're familiar with this, if it rings a bell a little bit, it might be because some of the doctrinal proponents of this include people like Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem, which we've spoken about before. But the basic definition is using human the human relationship of father and son as a model for the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. What EFS teaches is that the Son, because he's a Son, submits to the Father from all eternity and for all eternity. And so EFS purports that the Son's submission to the Father is here the fancy words ontological and not merely a function of the econometric Trinity. So what we mean by that is this imminence or ontological trinity refers to the nature of something, the being or the essence of God. The econometric trinity refers to the way in which the persons of the Godhead relate to one another. For example, like in the work of creation and salvation. So basically here's what it comes down to. This is a discussion uh, over who God is versus what God does and how he does it. So EFS is not promoting functional subordination inequality of essence nature. It's, it makes arguments for authority submission as inherent in the nature of God as father and son. So we're talking about the nature of the Godhead, the nature of the persons. That's the center of this doctrine. It's, it's parsing out and trying to define that and saying that there is a hierarchy. So that being said, when somebody comes to you, you're just having like a casual, super chill conversation about EFS. (laughs) Where where do you go in the scriptures? Or maybe it's better to say it this way. What what do you use from the scriptures to explain the error of the EFS position?
1: Well, I'll just say this, that nobody who knows me has ever seen me have a super chill conversation <laughs> about EFS, because there's there's not a lot that gets me going, gets my blood boiling in, an, in a potentially negative way uh, faster than... efs controversy so let let me add a, a couple quick points of clarification or refinement to what you just said before we jump into what the scripture says here is the most most of the the uh proponents or advocates of um efs would deny that the subordination is actually ontological but the entailment of their position it necessitates that it is ontological. It has to be. Right. right so here here's the example is the the word functional is in the the name of the doctrine right the eternal functional subordination but the problem is that when you push things back to prior to uh prior to the uh, creation or or irrespective of creation there really is nothing besides ontological so as soon as we talk about god god creating or purposing to create we're talking about the economy of redemption we're talking about the economic trinity if we're talking about god in himself prior to or, or apart from that consideration there is nothing but ontological to talk about. So when someone like Bruce Ware says, well, I'm not talking about the economic trinity. I'm talking about how God is apart from the economy, but I'm not talking about ontology. That itself reveals a, a misunderstanding in the terms of systematic theology and what we're talking about. So just a tiny bit of clarification, what you said, because if you do, if you go up to an an EFS advocate or or whatever, and you say like, well, why are you saying that the son is ontologically subordinate to the father, they're going to start screaming straw man until their head blows off. Um, even though the entailment of their position does result in this this ontological distinction. Some of them, like Doug Wilson, who I referenced earlier, does actually affirm. He does, I-, I think they're right. actually more honest with themselves or,
0: exactly. or
1: more likely they actually understand the implications more. Doug Wilson says that uh, that the son is submission. So the fundamental constitution or makeup of the son is submission itself. And the fundamental constitution of the father is uh, authority itself, uh, the Bailey brothers. I think it's Tim Bailey, but it might be David Bailey. I don't remember. He actually uses the word ontological in reference to this. So there are yes. EFS advocates that would use that language, but the vast majority, I think, because they're not very good systematic theologians, they don't even realize that they're talking about ontology. So, but that's that what said, we do
0: on this. That's what we do in this podcast. We just right. cut to the quick. You just got the summary. <laughs> that exactly. So is what the actual position that's being undertaken.
1: <laughs> yeah. So let let me let me preface this with. Uh, you know, not every dispute. Th- this actually happened during the Arian controversy. And although EFS shares some some features with Arianism, it's not Arianism proper, right? They don't argue that the sun is actually a creature. But in the Arian controversy in in the 300s, both the Arians and the uh, the Orthodox or the Catholic Christians were utilizing scripture in order to articulate their position. And so sometimes when we go to... A dispute like this, we have to be able to uh explain the scriptures. And my my tactic or my strategy in situations like this is actually to start on certain levels of common ground. So depending on who you're talking to, I don't know any of the EFS advocates who would say, Yeah, I deny um, I deny the Nicene Creed, or right. I I argue or I articulate that there actually is a plurality of wills in. The trinity so we're not going to go through all of like the details of it go back and listen to our episodes i want to say it was like 48 46 and 48 or something in the 40s or 50s you can find them there um so i try to start where there's common ground so so all of the efs advocates that i have interacted with would agree with the fact that there is a single will in the trinity and and the single will in the trinity is a result of the fact that there's a single nature in the trinity and so when you start with this common ground that you no longer really have to prove, right? We're talking about like strategies. If I was to build a comprehensive argument in favor of orthodox trinitarianism, I would have to I would have to articulate and and make the argument for this singular will in the Trinity. But because your interlocutor, the person you're talking to, already agrees with you on that, you don't necessarily need to to pave over all that ground. Right. And when once you've already agreed that there's a single will in the divinity in the divine nature and thus the father the son and the spirit each share this singular will because they each fully possess and are the single divine nature their their greatest proof text for their uh, for their position actually refutes their position itself and that actually happens any time you have an inconsistent position right the single best uh, proof text to refute Arianism is actually the the passage in First Corinth or in Colossians one that talks about Christ being the firstborn over all creation. Even though they use that passage to support their theology, so when I when I get to that point, and we've already agreed that there's a singular will in the Trinity, that there's no there's no ontological distinction or difference between what the the way that the Father is God and the way that the Son is God. Once we've agreed to that. It's very easy to take them to first Corinthians 11, which is where they probably want to go anyways. So if you're talking about like a formal debate, this is actually a really great tactic because it kind of trips them up because you let them go to the passage. They're really interested in going to anyways. If you're talking about a more informal kind of situation, this is great because it, it continues to build that common ground, which gives you a place to launch off of. So I just want to read here, starting in verse uh, two. It says, now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. So we're talking about the common apostolic tradition that was common in the early church. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So they, they clue into that last little clause there that says the head of Christ is God, right? So they're saying, well, see right here. Christ is submissive to the father the same way that a, a, a human is submissive to Christ and the same way thus that a wife should be submissive to her husband. Well, the problem with this uh, and the way that you articulate the doctrine correctly from this, this here, the, the doctrine of the incarnation actually here is what we have is we have a three part analogy. And analogies work on the principle of a a common theme or a common feature that is true across all all components of the analogy, but in various ways. So if I say that my bed is hard as a rock. Well, it's not really hard as a rock because a rock has a much higher degree of hardness than my bed does. But what I'm saying is that a rock is hard and my bed is hard. And there's some point of comparison because both of them are hard in their own particular way. So in this passage, what we see is we see the head of every man is Christ. So we have two persons, two natures, Two uh, two distinct wills. Right. There's the will of, of a particular man. There's the will of Christ. And then we go to the next one. There's the head of a wife. Uh, the head of a wife is her husband. So we have two particular persons, two particular natures, two particular wills. There's the will of the wife and the will of the husband. And then we get to the third portion here, and if the EFS advocate is correct, then we're no longer talking about two distinct persons with two distinct wills, we're talking about two distinct persons with one singular will. Well, now the analogy breaks down because this last, this last coupling no longer has a point of comparison with the other two. Because what this is teaching is that the same way that Christ submits to God, that is taking his will and submitting it to the will of the Father... So also the man submits his will to Christ and the wife submits her will to her husband. So if we are in this third clause and each person uh, does not have their own distinct wills, then we're no longer in an analogy that functions correctly. Now we have this weird third part that doesn't have any point of reference or connection to the first two, which means it no longer can tell us anything about the first two. So when I say, um, this, this, uh, my bed is as hard as a rock. I'm talking about physical hardness, but if I were to say, man, that test I just took is as hard as a rock. That analogy doesn't work because the way that a test is hard, meaning difficult is different entirely than the way a rock is hard, meaning dense or physically hard. So that's what we have is, is we have an analogy that would break down if the EFS advocate is correct. However, If the Orthodox classic Trinitarian is correct and what we're talking about here is Christ in his incarnate state, according to his humanity in the economy of redemption, then we're talking about the human will of Christ being submitted to God in the same way that the the wife is submitted to her husband and the man is submitted to Christ so what we have now is we have two different options and we have to ask which one is consistent with the rest of the passage and when you when you look at it in this way and you understand systematically what's going on the EFS articulation of this doctrine is not consistent and it causes the text to become incoherent
0: that's good I think that's a helpful way to break it down I, I, what's interesting is how you can approach this from different perspectives. And I think that depending on with whom you're speaking, you might want to engage them in kind of a different way because of either their theological knowledge or their ability to want to kind of interface with the material in a more deep way or more way that's on the surface. And so one of the conversations I often have with people is very different from the one you just described because I think that is really great because you're parsing out, you're undermining the argument by using the same scriptures. Yeah, one of the things I like to focus on because my conversations probably are a little bit uh, more chill because people are um, not asking like the, the kind of like the, sometimes I think people hear this stuff and they want to talk about it. And that's generally the conversations more that I have Yeah. is well, what do you think about this? What do you think about um, complementarianism? And so where I usually start is on a, with a conversation about deity. And again, I like your idea of finding this common ground because we both deny the doctrine of EFS and the idea that the Father eternally has this greater authority than the Son. If you start there, it may, that may sound a little bit funky to some people's ears, especially if they're on the other side of this debate. But if you start with this idea of, well, let's talk about, can we affirm the deity of Christ? And I think, like you're saying, most would say yes, unequivocally, yes. And so the Bible clearly teaches the deity of Christ. And when we start to look at passages explain the deity of Christ, it becomes clear to us that there are no degrees of deity. Right. So all the attributes of God belong equally to all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Most, I think, would agree with this. So if you start going and just really spending some time looking at verses, ones that are familiar, even like John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, that's really helpful. Going to Romans 9, 5, which is, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Or Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, same type of thing. So what we find peppered throughout the scriptures, and this goes back to what I said at the beginning about, we have to kind of synthesize this a bit. Just like we're not going to find the word Trinity in any of the scriptures explicitly, we find it's far easy to intuit that that's exactly what we're talking about here. And if you, I think you begin your conversation by focusing on the deity of Christ and the understanding that all the attributes of God belong equally to all three persons, you will inevitably end up in a place where there is no hierarchy in the essence of who God is. Right. And once you start looking at these verses and you see how clearly the text makes it that Jesus is God, has all the same authority as God, all the same attributes it actually becomes uncomfortable to start to make the case that he is somehow subordinate to God, the father in that way. Yeah. And so I think even just on the face, that's a good place to start in the place that I often start.
1: Yeah. And you know, this is, this is um, along that same line. If it's true that the, the Bible presents both uh, the son and the spirit as the absolute sovereign over all the universe, If that's true, then EFS is false. And here's why.
0: Exactly. Is that
1: um, EFS requires sovereignty to become a relative attribute of the Father or of the Son and the Spirit. So in in EFS, and Bruce Ware actually says this. uh, Actually, I believe he says it pretty much explicitly. I don't have it in front of me, so don't quote me on that. But people like Bruce Ware actually want to say that the only absolute sovereign in the universe – who is unequivocally sovereign, who has no other sovereign above him, is the Father. Because the Son and the Spirit have the Father, according to people like Ware, as sovereign over them. And so the Son and the Spirit are only sovereign in relation to creation. Whereas the father is sovereign in relation to both creation and to the father or the son and the spirit. And so any, and and, and this is what we said the last time this question came up is in reality, because EFS is not a biblical doctrine Any scripture that you can put together that actually argues for the biblical doctrine is an argument against EFS. I know that's not the most satisfying answer, and it doesn't score you a lot of points in a debate, but that's the reality. So if you can find any passage and you can justify saying that the son is the absolute sovereign over the universe or that the spirit is the absolute sovereign over the universe then you, uh, you have now refuted EFS because the Son and the Spirit, according to uh, o- according to EFS, are only, at best, relative sovereigns, where the Father is an absolute sovereign. And so you, you have to be careful because there are some texts that actually you could use to support that, that idea, right? But that's where you have to parse out carefully and you have to understand the difference in a text that's referring to the economy of salvation or the economy, yes. the economic trinity, and that isn't just the incarnation. So sometimes I think well-meaning people want to say that the Son is only subordinate to the Father in the incarnation, and that's not actually correct. The Son is subordinate; takes on a subordinate role in the economy of of reality, the the economic action of the Trinity. The Son takes on a subordinate role, and that's where we get some confusion, where people start to pull quotes. Uh, out of Bavinck or Calvin or Voss, some classic Reformed thinkers, where they pull these quotes out, which will articulate that the son is actually subordinate to the father prior to the incarnation. But if you read them carefully, they're not talking about the ontological or the ad intra toward the inside trinity. They're always talking about the Christ's role as mediator, which starts prior to the incarnation, but actually is a function anticipating the incarnation. Right. So let's go back to a hypothetical scenario, right? A, a hypothetical scenario, which was possible but not actual, where the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past did not decree to create anything, right? In that scenario, this is the difference between EFS and, uh, and Orthodox Christianity or Catholic Christianity, is in that scenario— EFS would say, even in that situation where all that ever existed was the father, son, and the spirit, the son would still be subordinate to the father because the subordination of the son is an eternal reality. Whereas the Catholic Christian or the Orthodox Christian or the traditional Christian, whatever you want to call it, classic Christian would say only in a situation, only in a reality where God chooses to create, does the son and spirit become economically subordinate. And, and right. that's the difference. And that's why we say, that's why we end up saying that the EFS advocate only, only, even though they realize it, they end up saying that there's an ontological submission or an ontological subordination, because in that hypothetical scenario where, where God is the only thing that exists and no creation ever comes to be, there's nothing but the ontolo- ontological Trinity. And right. even in that situation, the son would still be subordinate as would the spirit in that, in that theology.
0: Right, yeah, basically, there can be no more levels of authority within the one divine being than there can be levels of deity right and so I, I know that Adam had asked explicitly for some scriptures, and I hope that what we provided has been helpful one ways to one of the ways to kind of back into some scriptures that would also be helpful by way of proof texting is again to, uh, to go back to the confession so if you look at the Westminster Confession, and you look at 8.2, it's going to speak about the Son being equal with the Father. You'll find lots of proof texts there that support what we're talking about. If you go to the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 11 speaks about the Holy Spirit being equal with God. You'll find lots of wonderful support there. And then lastly, even the Belgian Confession, at Article 8, speaks very explicitly about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal from eternity. So yeah. I would also point to those types of resources, which again, will push you back into the Scriptures. But this is the kind of thing that I think. What we're, I think part of what we've been dancing around is that you have to. We all have to get better at talking about this because we need to lead people through the arguments, what they're actually saying, and what they actually mean, and what the scriptures say about it. There's not a lot of low hanging fruit where you can just point to chapter and verse and say, "Well, here's the exact place in which we find." Uh, definitive proof, I think the 1 Corinthians passage is as close as we get to it, but it still requires explanation, which is another good reminder that we need to be constantly in the Scriptures, being taught by it, being informed by the Holy Spirit, sitting under good preaching, so that we get, as we've talked about before, that really, really strong and good theological muscle memory, or I guess to— theological hearing, so to speak, where we hear something, we're like, "Well, that doesn't sound quite right. I'm not yeah. sure I understand why it doesn't sound quite right at the moment, but I know there's something about it that puts me on edge. And I think a lot of people are hearing this and thinking that very same thing. And so one of the last things that I want to touch on, because this is very relevant, it's actually just happened, is some of the comments that uh, Dr. John MacArthur has made in reference to Beth Moore, because a lot of the same argumentation that's used for complementarianism or other things in terms of like uh, roles of women and men in the church is sometimes used as the same basis or is at least tangent or overlapping for arguments for EFS. So yeah, real quick, we should just address that because it's very contemporary. You're familiar with some of the comments that he made at his yeah. recent conference, right?
1: Yep. Yep. So what what do you
0: think? What do you think? People are dying to know, Tony. What do you think?
1: Well, before I say that, I want to share one more scripture that I actually think... um, No, we're
0: done with scripture. Not allowed. The question.
1: The question, I think more or less, was looking for explicit scriptures that refute EFS. And we took the more systematic approach, which I actually think is the better approach because it builds the whole foundation. Yes, But if, if you look at Hebrews 1, and the whole point of Hebrews 1 is to argue for, positively for, the divinity of scripture from the Old Testament. And one of the main things that the EFS advocate is going to say is that the father or the son is said to worship the father, but the father is never said to worship the son. And the reality of that is, is if you read Hebrews one carefully, that's actually not the case. So what he says here, verse five, it says to which of the angels, the, the, the author is proving the superiority of the son to the angels. He says, for which of the angels did God ever say? And then he goes through a series of things. And then it says, and then again, when he brings the firstborn, speaking of Christ, into the world, right. he says, let all God's angels worship him. And then if you go down, he says, this is what he says to the angels. He, he says something and then he says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So what we have here, this is this is uh, astounding to me, it's absolutely remarkable, is the father is praising the Son using the language of the Psalms. That's what's happening in Hebrews one. Right. And then here it says, you Lord laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hand. So it is absolutely 100% not the case that we have zero scriptural evidence of the father worshiping the son, the father, the son, and the spirit in, in the ontological Trinity, all worship and glorify each other. The father praises the son using the Psalms. I mean, it's it's remarkable. It's absolutely astounding. So, when they say that, when they when they say, "Well, there's nowhere in this in the Bible that the Son is praised by the Father, is worshipped by the Father," it's just, no, not, not, true. True. It's just yes, not true. It's just all. not true at all. All throughout the Scriptures, we see all three persons worshiping and glorifying the others. It's just the way that it is. So, in reference yeah. to John MacArthur, though, and this most up, most recent conference, you know, most of the comments that I've seen, and you can tell me if this rings true in your experience too. Most of the com- the comments have boiled down to, man, John MacArthur is so mean. Right. <laughs> and, and you know, this, this might sound almost a little bit, um, pejorative or sexist, but there's this weird phenomenon that happens sometimes in conservative Christianity where certain sectors of, um, of egalitarianism want men to handle women as though they were men, right? Beth Moore, in a lot of ways, wants to be treated like just one of the guys. She wants to have all the same rights and privileges of the guys. She wants to preach like the guys. She wants to be able to publish and to be able to speak at conferences like the guys. But then as soon as the guys respond to her like she's one of the guys, which involves a little bit of ribbing and involves a little bit of You know, a little bit of aggression, sometimes a little bit of fighting as soon as someone actually responds to one of these women, like one of the guys, all of a sudden they're being too mean. So that's kind of my first thought is like, let's all grow up a little bit. They used a little bit of humor. They were making some jokes. They were kind of like they were kind of uh, ribbing her a little bit. But at, at the end of the day, like they were making a serious theological argument and they were making a significant point. And, and right. I actually 100 percent agree with their point that at the end of the day, I really think that Beth Moore needs to just shut her mouth like that might sound like a really like a really firm or strict way to say it. But there are a lot of like straight out accusations that she's making about the logical outcomes of complementarianism or yeah of complementarianism. Right. I saw a video where she basically said, like, well, complementarianism doesn't necessarily lead to abuse but look at how much it's been used to abuse people. And right. and the, the reality of it is, is that a bi- biblical complementarianism doesn't lead to abuse. Unbiblical complementarianism leads to abuse, but biblical complementarianism leads to the increased dignity of women and men protecting women, not abusing them. So anyone who's utilizing, uh, complementarianism to abuse women, and I would actually say people like Doug Wilson fall into this camp. Anyone who's using complementarianism to abuse women is actually doing it wrong. They're getting complementarianism. The, one of the whole points of complementarianism is that part of the purpose of man is to protect women. That's that's part of our fundamental constitutional makeup is to have this desire and drive to protect the women in our lives, and, and you're doing it wrong if you actually use it to uh, to suppress and to abuse them.
0: Right. I agree with that. I, I want to be a little bit measured in my comments because – so just in case anybody has no idea what we're talking about, and I'm sure by now most people do, but at John MacArthur's conference, he was part of a panel, and they were doing an, a word association exercise. And the first words that he were given was given was Beth Moore. And so there was some good-natured joking about how, you know, wow, what a way to start us off. And uh, basically, his response to that was, in terms of the word association, was go home. So that's now been oft-quoted as his response to her. Right. And I think part of that is tongue-in-cheek in the sense that he's, he's being humorous, but there is a very serious subtext there. And I want to say this, like, uh, for, for what I understand about Beth Moore, I think that her teaching has been incredibly impactful for many, many women, including my wife. Uh, she regularly leads a Bible study, and often that involves materials that Living Proof Ministries has produced, which is Beth Moore. But what I find interesting is that my wife is very discerning about the the use the resources that she uses. And I what we found recently is that she exclusively relies on what would be called like Beth's older stuff. A lot of like her her ministry, her series from like several years ago. A lot of her thinking has evolved over that time, and I think because she is a very strong personality, because she's an outspoken person, and because in some ways there is like many leaders. We talked about this whether it's Beth Moore or whether whether it's John Calvin for that person, pr- purpose or whether it's um man why I just totally forgot Mars Hill. I just totally forgot his name. Mark Trischol. Mark Driscoll, thank you. I was you. just
1: going to make the same comparison.
0: Yeah, great. There's a cult of personality, and so I think a lot of this is she's been brought into argumentation that it would be not may not be fair to represent her with, but at the same time she has definitely made very I, I'd say she's been very outspoken about the role of, of women in the church, and I it certainly does border on the edge of preaching at a lot of times. So I I think that some of her views are very problematic. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater completely, but you should know that this is not like an unqualified endorsement. I'm not condoning what Beth Moore is speaking now. I just want to say, I think there is some value in a lot of the previous work that she's produced. And especially, I think there was a time because my wife just reminded me of this. We were talking about it where in many of her previous video series, she's saying things like uh, women should not preach. Women should be per the scriptures that this is very, very clear that women should sit under places of authority when it comes to teaching and preaching in the church. And so I think that there there was a very much a time in her ministry when she was filling this very appropriate, loving, incredible space where she was teaching women. And uh, by default, I think there's things that men could get out of her video series. But I think it's what's happened since that time, and kind of this modern, more contemporary movement, that gives me a lot of pause For concern. So I don't want that to sound like an unqualified endorsement if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does. And, you know, we did an episode on complementarianism a little bit back. um, And one of the things that, you know, you and I are on the same page that the, the biblical prohibition against women teaching is a prohibition, primarily, if not exclusively, of women assuming the role of elder or functioning as elders teaching authoritatively the congregation from the word of God. So I do not believe personally, and I think you're on the same, I know you're on the same page. I do not believe that there is, uh, is never a context in which is okay for a woman, a woman to teach theological concepts to an audience, including men. So uh, we have to be very careful and and there's a whole different discussion that has to go into that. But, you know, a, a small group, that is uh, teaching a Bible study uh, that is going through like a book or a Bible study material that is not authoritative ecclesiastical teaching. Right. Exactly. So so whether it is my wife leading a small group discussion about the book of Ruth uh, that includes men or whether it is me leading a small group uh, about the book of Ruth that includes men and women there's really not in in terms of my view of the scripture, there's not all that much difference between the two of us. We're not teaching authoritatively. It's a very casual conversation where it becomes a problem. And this is where Beth Moore recently has crossed the line is in assuming the authoritative role of preaching to the congregation from the scriptures on the Lord's day in the presence of God's people from behind the pulpit. And that's where she's crossed the line. And you know, I agree with you that some of Beth Moore's, particularly her early material, it was maybe a little bit fluffy. Uh, it was maybe a little bit, it wasn't something I would enjoy, but there were certainly a lot of women that learned from, learned the scriptures from Beth Moore and her earlier teachings. But as she's begun to sort of like key into this, honestly, what I think happened is she has always wanted to be in a role that she was not permitted by scripture and now that the the tides have changed a little bit, I think that she has seized an opportunity that she's kind of always wanted to seize. Because now she's in pulpits on Sundays, she's preaching uh, from the scriptures in authoritative senses. She's calling people to account for the fact that they don't allow women to be pastors. So she's she's in a very different place than she was maybe 5 or 10 years ago. I've always thought she was a little fluffy. I've always thought there was better material out there, but there are a lot of people that that learned good, solid biblical uh teaching from her prior to this weird transition. I'm not 100% sure when this transition happened, but even beyond the egalitarian element of it, She's also been associated with word of faith teaching, prosperity gospel teaching. So she definitely, right. She's definitely gone off of the reservation here, but that has not always been the case. And this is where I think the, the, um, association with Mark Driscoll comes in and, and, and then we can, we should wrap this up because we're already way past our time is, you know, they make the point in this video with John MacArthur makes that this is really a narcissistic, situation right Beth Moore is essentially preaching herself. she's elevated herself into a position she shouldn't hold. She spends a lot of her time recounting stories or her own experience about having this burden to preach and she's she's essentially ordained herself to the office of elder when she does not uh, have a right to it. And Mark Driscoll, uh, Tulian Tavidian others who have fought who who may or may not have been qualified, you know um, Doug Wilson is the same sense may or may not have been qualified at one point, but were qualifiable. They no longer all qualify, are qualified, but they have still thrust themselves into this position of elder, which the Bible has very strict regulations about who can fill the office of elder. And so there is this element of self-focusedness, right? If you listen to Doug Wilson's ministry, it is very much Doug Wilson-centric right? It's very much, this is the way I'm being persecuted. This is the way people are going to malign my words. Julian Tavidian is all about, you know, this was my sin and my sin uniquely qualifies me. Uh, Mark Driscoll is very much about, this is a church that I founded, you know, out of this adversity. It's, it's very much a self-centered ministry and, and joy, uh, Uh, Beth Moore is very much in the same vein. So I just think people need to be cautious. And yeah, like maybe they could have been a little bit more serious or a little bit more um, reserved about their their wholesale disdain and disregard for Joyce Meyer. But or for Beth Moore, I keep on saying Joyce Meyer. But at at the end of the day, if I'm being brutally and transparently honest, Beth Moore deserves to be disregarded at this point. She deserves to be treated like a false teacher who has usurped the role of elder illegitimately, which is exactly what Paul forbids a woman to do. So no matter what we want to say about how Beth Moore got to where she is, she has now done exactly and precisely explicitly what Paul forbids. We can have a disagreement about whether informal, non-authoritative teaching is something that a woman can do. You and I think that, that it can. There are good biblical arguments that she can't. But the one thing that everyone agrees who's reading the scriptures honestly can say is that a woman cannot usurp. Authority, illegitimately obtain authority over a man. And that's exactly what Beth Moore, in many senses, has sought to do. And it's exactly what she has done.
0: Right on. So, in the final analysis, where these two things converge is the fact that I believe that in terms of trying to support this argument, that women may preach on the Lord's day in that kind of formal capacity, and that there is some kind of eternal functional ordination of the Son, that in both cases, the onus is on the person making those arguments to actually prove them from the scriptures, because the scriptures are very clear against both of those things. So I think that that's why it came to my mind, and because they use oftentimes many of the same argumentation. And in some ways, the dismantling of one is the dismantling of the other. So that's why I think it's important for us to address that. So thanks for being willing to go there, Tony.
1: Yeah, I'm always willing to go there. You know, you know, I do want to say one thing (laughs) because I just picked up my phone because I saw a notification and I want to extend my condolences to you that me without you is resigning as a band. And I I want to just share this this uh, chat thread here. So so <laughs> oh, we no, begun to be
0: embarrassing.
1: We begun uh podcasting today at 3 p.m. <laughs> Eastern Standard Time. And uh my wife actually sends it we have this group text message, sends a notice that Me Without You is no longer gonna be a band after this year. And Jesse responds to it at 3.31 p.m. <laughs> and my wife actually says, Are you texting while recording a podcast? <laughs> To which Jesse says in more or less words, yes, yes, I am. So I just want you as an audience to know that Jesse was focused the entire time, except for a short period between 3 and 3.30 no, p.m. Listen,
0: I, I, I was tracking with you <laughs> hardcore on all the EFS stuff. This just, um, I just happened to see this because it's on my screen. It's, yeah. it's also on the internet here. And I was like, "This is too sad not to respond to real time." Me would that use my favorite band it's ever? True. So the yeah, fact that, that they're not going to be an active band, like I have to have to mourn over that. And you yeah. also just took away like my denial for the next time. So that's
1: okay. It's big enough news that you can deny it next time, anyways.
0: <laughs> I, pre- I feel like that is my denial, but for you and for my wife, that might be your affirmation. No, 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 no. Even though. Music that-
1: Even though I do not like and I do not appreciate me without you, I know that there is a whole group of people that do. So I can appreciate the amazing the sadness that comes with recognizing that they're no longer going to be active.
0: They're amazing. Well, this might be a record on the longest cast we've ever done to date.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: I don't think anything tops it. So if you stuck with us the entire time, thank you. Yes. You win a prize. You're a champ.
1: The prize is that you stuck with us. There's no other prize.
0: Exactly. The prize actually is that you go to confessionalware.com and purchase buy. <laughs> a
1: stein. <laughs> the prize is that you get to buy something everyone else can buy. Good work. Yes. All right, so, Jesse. Let's not drag it out any longer. No, please. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Bye.